The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Second Peter chapter 2, the apostle writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment? And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly? And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly? And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is God's word. We take the stern along with the comforting and ask the Lord to teach us what he wants us to learn here. Well, the word tolerance might be modern America's most misused and misunderstood word. Of course, there's a place for tolerance. There's a place for tolerance in the broad realm of racial and ethnic regard for one another. There is never a place for intolerance against another person for a mere racial or ethnic reason. But tolerance has been stretched today and misapplied today to have us think that it is supposed to openly sanction a very elastic set of societal standards, moral standards in particular. Of course, if you declare there's no longer any absolute of right or wrong, then tolerance is supposed to apply to almost anything that somebody decides to do because the individual is king and the individual cannot be questioned. 
And those of us who would question it and would believe that God has set some black and white absolute standards of right and wrong in his word, now suddenly when we defend that which has been right or wrong in our society for thousands of years based not only upon the Old and New Testaments but upon the rule of natural law and civilized understanding, we are called bigots for standing for things that we see as intolerable and we believe God sees as intolerable. The author Dorothy Sayers is not too well known. She lived in the early to mid-20th century, an Englishwoman. Dorothy Sayers had some great wisdom, and she wrote this. She said, in the world today, there's something that may be called tolerance, but in hell it is rightly labeled despair. This is the sin, she said, that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, will interfere with nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing for which it is willing to die. Very well said. That's where we are with tolerance today, as many of you know. And the greatest, most uh, insulting term that gets thrown at you and I is sometimes is that we are intolerant when we're supposed to be kind and forgiving of almost everything. Well, belief in Christ and Christian morality are not do-it-yourself endeavors where you can just have rubber band ethics and stretch them to cover anything you want. When you transgress the law of God, you face the wrath of God. Yes, indeed, there is forgiveness. Yes, indeed, there is salvation by grace through faith. But once saved by that grace, we are still expected to pay honor to God's law. For it tells us the mind of God, and it tells us how we can be blessed by interacting correctly one with another. And there's no question that the chapter we're entering into here with a little bit of trepidation, Second Peter 2, is not the only place by any means where God is shown to have a mind that is intolerant of certain expressions of morality or faith. One of the most powerful in a negative sense, chapters in the Gospels would be Matthew chapter 25, if you've never read that. That is where Jesus set off to say, woe to you Pharisees, woe, 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 as he named one thing after another that they were doing, they thought in the name of godliness that he was condemning with righteous anger. And of course, you remember Jesus in the temple displaying actual violence and intolerance, yes, intolerance towards materialism, making a profit scheme out of the selling of things in God's house of prayer. Well, Second Peter 2 now opens by telling us that wherever there is a genuine word from God, there are going to be counterfeits. There are going to be those things that are similar but not the same to the truth of God. And the tone of Second Peter 2 is an unhappy tone, a negative tone, a condemnatory tone. We haven't even gotten into the hardest words yet. They come later in the chapter. It makes for hard reading. It's confrontational. It says that not every outward 
profession of faith or would-be profession of faith in Christ is valid or recognized by God. That there are those who actually pose as what the Bible would call angels of light with devilish designs and devilish goals. Peter almost bursts a blood vessel, I would say, in this chapter because Obviously, he's writing with the knowledge that God's people in various locations— remember, this isn't addressed to just one congregation like Philippians or Ephesians. This is sort of a circular letter that went to many different Christians in a a wide swath of territory. So he's writing about a widespread problem, that there's falsehood among those who teach and lead the subject of the gospel of Christ. There are He opens up by saying, just as there were false prophets among the Old Testament people of God, there will be false false prophets among you. He doesn't say living nearby or in the next town. He says, among you. Look around. See who you're listening to. See who is influencing you because there's a possibility that their message is in some way false. Now, he doesn't go about listing a lot of names. He doesn't give us a single name of an individual, actually. But he says enough descriptive things, especially as we go further in this chapter in the next couple of weeks, that people have a, a set of criteria to analyze in a mature way what they're hearing and to think, is this indeed truly from God or is it somehow that which Peter was upset about? Well, I don't come to this passage with an axe sharpened about any specific ministry or TV star Bible twister, although there are plenty of them out there. And people come, and you can come and ask me if you want, and you'll get my individual opinion, which may or may not be correct, and say, well, I really like this guy on the TV. What do you think about him, Pastor? And I'll tell you what I think. And I may say, great, he's just fantastic. He's preaching God's Word. Chances are, though, from what I know, I don't obviously sit home on Sunday morning and listen to what people are saying, but I have a pretty good idea what they're saying, that I might have to say, watch out for this. You Watch out for this direction or this tendency, or, or what does this man say about uh, being ruined in sin? Is he just building you up and saying mankind is wonderful and you're a great person and God wants nothing but good and health and wealth for you and all you got to do is claim it and you're all set? I'll say, turn off the TV. Because Peter wrote about that man here in Second Peter chapter 2. You know, it's a humbling thing to think. And how can we make an accurate estimate here? I, I cannot make an accurate estimate. But when you see the distortions that are out there today, the, the diluted teaching, the weak teaching, or the teaching that's bent in a certain direction, you almost want to say that in the name of evangelical Christianity, and there are those who say we should stop using that word evangelical because it's been so blotted and, and so harmed by wrong people claiming it, but it used to mean true to the Word of God, among evangelical Christians today, there's so many distortions and so many teachings that are lacking in things that you almost want to say there's more out there that is not true to the gospel than what is. And that's a, that's a pretty strong judgment to make if it's true, and I can't absolutely prove that it is. But I certainly know 
that I, I get a the major evangelical Christian magazine. Some of you know what I'm talking about. For 50 years now, I've received it for 48 years. I started getting it when I was in college. Wow, is it ever different? Is it ever different? It's three miles wide and half an inch deep these days. I don't find much in it. I, I, every time it comes due, I say, why am I getting this? And I keep renewing. I don't know what's wrong with me. There's a devilish impulse that says, sign up again. And I think I do it just to see if they're going to get worse. And they do. They reward me every time. I told my wife the other day, this is the last. I'm not renewing again. Ask me in a year what what I do with it. Well, remember that 1 Peter 4.17 said, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, False prophets and false Christs will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive even God's elect if that were possible. It seemed like Jesus was saying, I hope it's not possible, and certainly it isn't ultimately possible, that God's elect are going to be deceived, but they might be for a while. They certainly might be fooled for a while by people who come along. Well, when we read about the limits of God's tolerance, there ought to be a broad way in which we're cautioned to say, be careful. Be careful of who you believe Be careful of whose teaching you attach yourself to. Know what the standards are that God holds that would make his teaching right and and abounding in fruitfulness and growth for you, not error that would pull you astray. Well, first of all today then, I want to, and I've got two main points here and, and a conclusion. First of all, I want to look at these first three verses to see some characteristics of this false Christianity that Peter's warning about. He's warning about those who, quote, introduce destructive heresies. Now, you need to realize this is an internal problem inside the faith, inside the church. Peter is not concerned about Buddhism or Confucianism or Islam. Those are man-made philosophies. They're not under consideration here. He's concerned about those who would say, we are handling the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here it is. And yet what they present is something else. If you want a simple illustration, think of the children's story, Little Red Riding Hood, tripping along to Grandma's house, only to find out as she comes to Grandma's that here's the savage wolf wearing Grandma's nightcap and nightgown, waiting to gobble her up. This is heresy in Bible vocabulary using Bible names and Bible concepts taught in institutions that may once have been very pure Bible institutions. And by the way, that's one of the great deceptions today. You know, we have people who attended Christian colleges in this land or seminaries, Bible colleges, Oh, and they mentioned the name of some institution, and, and it was way up there 50 years ago and, and revered for its faithfulness. And people just don't quite accept the idea that some of these institutions have fallen way, way down in their spiritual and biblical and theological roots. 
and they, they just almost don't believe it would be possible. Oh, you know, Smithtown College, oh, well, that's a pure institution. Well, check out what your son or daughter will learn in their required freshman Bible class, and maybe you'll have a different opinion. You should never expect anyone to step up to you and say, I am a false teacher. You know, that doesn't happen, does it? Of course it doesn't happen. They would come to you and and parade their degrees and parade their learning or whatever and say, well, I am a qualified person to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet what they tell you is full of subtle errors and omissions. Heresy is a subtle thing. It's not announced as a frontal assault upon you. It comes in and creeps in sort of under the door. It's devious. It approaches you in a way with a deadened conscience and a destructive design. And, you know, the people who teach it quite often are nice. It's not saying they have horns growing out of their heads. There's a gentleman who is uh, featured. If you look at uh, different book clubs that sell uh, books, History Book Club would be one I know of at least, and, and others like that that sell books that might include some with biblical or theological titles. There's one particular gentleman who's a graduate of Wheaton College. He has an impeccable uh, doctorate, and he is featured in every time in these different secular book clubs. He's got the books about the Gospels or about rediscovering Jesus or something. I'll tell you his name, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman's books are worth about as much as a brick as far as theological content. And yet a man is, was an evangelical. He's not one now. I'm not his enemy in any particular way. I'm telling you what he teaches. He teaches destructive criticism of the Word of God. And yet these secular book clubs say, well, we have to include some books for people who want to learn about the Bible. So we'll put Bart Ehrman's books in because he went to Wheaton and he went here. <sighs> well... You know, if, you need, if, if your refrigerator isn't level and you need something to level up one corner, one of Bart Ehrman's books would be real handy. I wouldn't use it for anything else, ladies and gentlemen. I, I'm sorry. He's a dangerous man. He's a deceptive man. John Calvin said of people that he confronted in the Reformation days like this, I quote him, they infiltrate the church by flanking attacks and underground tunnelings. They bend the Scripture, Calvin said. They select fragments which seem to agree nominally with their notions, but they avoid all the rest that might sound any different, that would hold the truth in tension. And they give you their bent interpretation. Notice in our text, Peter says about them something that's kind of curious and arouses a discussion among the commentators. They deny the master who bought them. Now, some of you are theologically sensitive enough to see what's wrong with that. What do you mean, Peter? Do you mean they're actually Christians? The the master really did buy them with his blood, and now they're denying them? Does that mean you can be a Christian and then not be a Christian? Well, we know there are too many scriptures that deny that, and here's here's the interpretation. Here's Here's where maturity comes in. You have to know how to balance one scripture against another and see the truth in a whole way. And we think Peter can't possibly be saying they were blood-bought, true 
Christians, but now they've left because that denies the Scripture. He must be saying, it, it only makes sense that he would be saying, they had formally professed Christian faith. They had formally professed Christ bought me at his cross. He's my Savior and my Lord. But now they have completely abandoned that whole idea. And that makes perfect sense according to 1 John two nineteen that says, they went out from us because they were not of us in the first place. That's the New Testament understanding of this kind of person. Now, Hebrews 10.29 says these are people who actually trample the Son of God underfoot and treat his blood as an unholy thing. Wow. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Trampling the Son of God underfoot and treating his blood as an unholy thing. Well, the importance of that statement is that most of the time, the biggest error that is made, if you say, how am I supposed to tell where these people are coming from? The biggest error that gets made are errors about the person of Jesus Christ. If you go back and and take a basic church history course, you'll find out that the real doctrinal struggles of the early church for three centuries were struggles over who is Jesus. Is he a man? Is he God? Is he God and man? What is he? What does he mean? How are we supposed to understand him? These struggles uh, filled the great councils of the church until places like the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon worked these things out with a biblical, balanced understanding. Colossians 2.9 has a wonderful statement about Christ where it says that he is the fullness of the Godhead in a human body. That's a tremendously important New Testament statement. Jesus is absolutely unique. And if you go wrong about who he is and how he is constituted and how he was virgin-born, unlike any man and yet a true man who died, if you go wrong about Christ, your engine will jump the track and pull your entire train of doctrine off along with it. So ask what another teaching or teacher that you, you become enamored with, what is he saying about Christ? I'm told, I'm sure many of you have heard this before, that when federal agents, I believe it's the Secret Service that has to do with counterfeiting in our country, and when Secret Service agents are being trained to recognize counterfeit money, you've heard this before, they, they don't pull, they probably at some point pull out examples of counterfeiting and say, here, look what this guy did, and look how he made this, and he smudged this, and he didn't get the lines correct. But the main thing that they do before they do that is they have you study the real thing. A real $100 bill, a real $20 bill with a, uh, you know, a microscope or a magnifier, and you study the minute particulars of what make that authentic. So that once you know the real thing, you will pretty quickly recognize that which is not authentic. That's what you need to do to be armed against this kind of teaching. Study Christ. Study the the many things that the Scriptures have to say about him until you are familiar with him in his attractiveness, his beauty, his wonderful character. And then you're going to hear in somebody's message, wait a minute, there's a missing note here that I'm just not hearing. Or that doesn't sound like what the Bible says. Further, besides uh, having false pictures of Christ, 
we notice that Peter says here in verse 2 that what these people do is bring the truth to be blasphemed. In other words, they make real Christianity look bad because people who don't know better assume that the false things they're saying are what real Christians say. Back in the days of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and Jimmy Swagger, I think Jimmy Swagger's still around. You can pick him up at 1 a.m. in the morning or something on a an obscure cable station. The guy just won't go away. But uh, people used to come to me and say, well, I heard Jim Baker say this. Okay, preacher, how do you defend that? I say, I don't defend that. He's wrong. Oh, well, they're amazed. You know, they thought what they were hearing was straight apostolic Christianity. And I said, no, pardon me, but Mr. Baker doesn't speak for me, and he doesn't speak for the great majority of Christians. And sadly, he spent his time in jail and everything else because he didn't speak the real gospel of Christ. But a false gospel is always going to bring the real gospel into disrepute. And then we read here that many follow their sensuality. Very interesting that Peter chose that word. They follow their materialistic, emotionally based, even sexually based way of life. They're popular. What they're doing looks attractive. They're well-dressed. They're well-spoken. And you know, to test Bible doctrine by its sheer popularity is one of the, the most just really deceptive things of all. People look at a ministry and they say, well, look at that. There are thousands of people going there. That guy must really be preaching the gospel. Maybe, perhaps he is. The truth does have a certain quality to draw many people, but just as easily does non-truth, sensational truth, that which is somehow dressed up or given an aberration or, or you know, a unique sensational aspect, that draws a crowd too. People are not all that discerning in the broad public when it comes to attending things that claim to be truth. Now, my son's sitting here listening to me today, so hold on, Ben. Your dog figures into this message. But uh, we, um, we have a dog. You've heard of the famous Hazel before. She's still around. And sometimes we end up with a boarding kennel at our house, and we have my son's dog, Boots. And Boots is a great dog. Um, but we have all kinds of doggy behavior going on that I get to observe when the two of them are there. They're very competitive, you know. I'm eating breakfast, and our Hazel is supposed to get a crust or something, and its breakfast hasn't ended unless Hazel gets something at the end. Well, now we've got Boots, who knows he's supposed to get something too. And, and Boots is really quick on the draw. Man, if you flip that crust in the air, he's airborne, and he can grab that crust before it, it's two feet from the, from the floor. Well, my point is that... Boots is a good example. Nice dog, but a good example of someone who will eat anything. You know, if, if we took the garbage and spread the garbage, boom, he, he'd be all over it, consuming it. Well, people are like that. You know, here's a scrap of something sounds sensational. Somebody says, I've got a new observation about Jesus. I can tell you about the lost years of Jesus or something. All those years that we don't know about, that the, here, here's a new writing that tells us all about this. 
And people, whoa, let's find out what that is. I'll name a name. A decade ago, a, a woman who still teaches at Princeton University and Princeton Seminary, Dr. Elaine Pagels, uh, came to Lancaster County, and she appeared to trumpet her particular cause that she, her whole scholarly career has been, been built on this, basically. And uh, I read in the paper that she uh, appeared at a uh, hall rented for her and got some publicity in advance, and there was standing room only. Why? I mean, if I rented a hall, there wouldn't be standing room only. Uh, hey, Michael Rogers is going to come and teach you about, you know, the teaching of the biblical four Gospels about Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe a couple of you would show up, but the hall wouldn't be standing room only. Elaine Pagel's got standing room only. Why? Because she was there with the message that don't read the four Gospels. They aren't giving you the correct information. The superior gospel of all gospels is the gospel of Thomas. A rather late document written by Gnostics contains very little of any value. Real biblical scholarship does not at all see it as a competitor that it should have been in the Bible. But Elaine Pagel's whole career is built on it should have been in the gospels. It's the best one. Use it to interpret all the others. Well, that's nonsense. That's not even good biblical scholarship. But you can make a career out of that, you see. And crowds come. Oh, she's got something new. This must be the hidden truth that the others don't want to tell us about. Folks, be careful. Be very careful. Those are some of the characteristics that Peter mentions here. Now he he begins to change into the second thing I want to mention, and that is God's judgment on false belief. I have to be quick here. From verses 3 through 8, he's primarily emphasizing the condemnation that comes upon this. And he gives several Old Testament examples. One, he mentions rebellious angels, verse 4, who fell from heaven, and he says, were cast into hell. Now, this is a little glimpse of something that the Bible doesn't tell us that much about, only hints at the rebellion of Satan and angelic followers against the throne of God. But Peter knows about it, and, and God's speaking through him to say, well, there's the first example of some people who thought they could have the truth their way, and they lost everything. Then he gives examples of two believers in Old Testament day, Noah and Lot, who both stood in times when almost everybody else was captivated by unbelief and rebellion, and somehow they managed to endure. The interesting thing is we get an insight to Lot here that we don't have from the Old Testament itself. When you read about Lot in Genesis, it seems like Lot is basically quite satisfied in having a good time living in Sodom and all of the, uh, mat- the material pleasures of the flesh that are going on in Sodom. It doesn't say Lot was participating in them, but it doesn't tell you too much about how upset he was. Here we find in verse 7, he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked people who were all around him. Well, Romans 1 tells us how God, when people would not have him, would not believe in him, would not acknowledge him, turned people over to themselves and their sinful ways. It says in repeated ways in Romans 1, God gave sinful man over to a reprobate mind. And then it says God gave them up. One of the worst sentences that could possibly be pronounced on anybody. God 
gave them up. How would you like to fill your name into that sentence? God gave John Smith up and wouldn't have anything to do with him again. The end result is devastating. Condemnation. A lost estate is what awaits that person. Well, when we're living in a time where many, many of the people around us, and in fact the whole drift of our government, the drift of societal standards, the drift of what we read in so-called social media that seems to be like another source of law over people's lives today. You know, if somebody, enough people proclaim this is true on social media, your 14-year-old believes it must be true. And what you've got is a whole lot of people that are just plain wrong. They don't know anything, but they're legislating for all the 14 and 15 and 18-year-olds of America. The total number of Christians who realize what's going on in our society, that God is intolerant of much that our society tolerates, is not a large number. And there's some times in which we feel like we're really alone. We're really like Noah. Noah was a preacher while he was an ark builder. He was telling people, God is going to judge. Everybody laughed. They thought he was a nut. Here was Lot, the only man who was in, even resembled godliness in Sodom. And the, the idea was if God could find a certain number of godly people in Sodom, he'd leave it without judgment. Well, he couldn't. All he found was Lot, and he destroyed the place. When there's only a minority standing, we can easily think we're wrong, folks. We can easily think we've missed it somehow. We need to learn that with the truth of God and the law of God and the mind of God, the majority, quite often, is going to go against it. The majority is all running in one direction. If you watch the great marathon races like Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, you see 10,000 people crowding a highway and all these runners. What would it be like if you decided, hey, I'm going to be at the front and I'm going to run the opposite direction? You'd be trampled. you think, I couldn't do it. Well, that's what we have to think we're doing sometimes. Because even those within the church say, oh, no, no, you have to be tolerant here of people who can't get gender figured out. No, God made man in his image and God made woman in his image. And man and woman continue to be in God's image. We're running against the stream. There's a religion called evangelical Christianity that resembles the truth of God at times. It even has some of the things of the truths of God, but it doesn't often have the core of Jesus Christ and him crucified, of a sovereign God over all salvation. Folks, we've got a lot more to see in this passage, and I really have to stop. I'm just out of time today. But let me stop with this word of assurance in verses 9. Verse 9 in particular here. It's why I read the extended portion. The Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous under punishment until the judgment day. It can seem like evil is endorsed by everybody. Compromised, watered-down teaching, flood the airwaves, comes forth from pulpits. True Christ-centered faith, biblical faith, does not seem to be held high by the majority. Yet, 
we are wrong to despair. We're assured here. The Spirit of God spoke through Peter. The Sovereign Lord knows the situation. Our Savior has power to rescue His people. The deliverance of Noah and Lot did not come immediately. They had to endure long years of tough living, enduring scorn and loneliness and trusting in God, but their rescue came in God's time. And Peter ends this section, at least, with telling us our God is on His throne. He knows His people. He will not tolerate forever that which mocks Him. He knows how to rescue, and He will. So you who look steadfastly to Christ, you will not be overwhelmed. Thanks be to God. Father, as we go on with this, it's not a pretty picture. And we wonder, is Peter just labeling everybody who's not like himself as a bad guy? We'd ask you to help us not to have that mentality that if you're not of my denomination or my church, you must be wrong. But help us to be mature and discerning, to see what a message is saying about Jesus Christ and your word and eternal salvation. And help us to be confident that you know how to keep your people, even in the darkest days. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.